Welcome back to the Paperless Feathers. My name is Justin, the co-contributor and podcast editor here on the Paperless Feathers. And with me, as always, is Mr. Kerry, the Grand Marshal and Lord of all that is podcasting. Uh, Kerry, how are you today? Well, I, I'm feeling better since I've been apparently bequeathed, been bequeathed titles of nobility. I wasn't necessarily prepared for that. I'm blushing over here. Yes, yes. And so we are, we are uh, together, live in person, on recording. And uh, <laughs> coming at you <laughs> today on the so we are paperless fest, and we're all about German principalities today. And um, we hope to be, we, we hope, hope to be, be because I'll, Hamilton is all about them in Paper Nineteen. He is, but you know he throws a few other few other uh, democracies and uh, confederacies. Ah, throwaway the, confederacies. Throw. Well, I know merely, he, thinks, he thinks they're throwaway confederacies. Merely hypothetical that's icing sure. on the cake. So, um, but I'm prepared for those also. Uh, so all right, the well, Polish Confederacy and the Swiss Confederacy. Polish and Swiss. I mean, they they didn't even get any uh, lead-ins in the last episode here. I thought we were just about talking about Germans, but we've got the Polish and Swedish Confederacies as well to get into. Yeah, he so, likes to throw things in on the end in these these three papers: the seventeen, the eighteen, or the the uh, eighteen, nineteen, and twenty. So we we are chock full of of failed confederacies today. So with that lead-in, as your role in summarizer in chief. Uh, if you can uh, summarize away, sir. I am prepared to summarize, and so I will begin. Well, in this paper, and this is, again, a, another Hamilton and Madison paper, but I, again, suspect it was mostly Hamilton based on his style of writing. Um, Hamilton and Madison start by reassuring us, thank God, that uh, if you were worried that we they've run out of ancient examples of federalism to discuss, well, fear not, because they have got even more deep dives on modern confederacies that we can discuss. And then he just rolls right into talking about late 18th century Germany. So he give, he starts out with a brief thumbnail backstory of what we have come to think of as modern-day Germany. Um, so way back in around the 800s, Germany was part of the Empire of Charlemagne. So for, for our listeners' purposes today, um, Charlemagne basically was this uh, French king. Well, he came from France, and uh, he pretty much united all of Western Europe into one empire uh, ruled by him. Um, but after he died, basically, his different descendants carved up Western Europe into different successor kingdoms. So one of them uh, became the... Uh, area of modern-day France, uh, and another one, there was three, but the, we, the one we care about the most today is going to be what became the core of modern-day Germany. <clears throat> and that portion of Charlemagne's empire was uh, <clears throat> took on the title of the Holy Roman Empire. They like to think of themselves as sort of the successors to the glories of ancient Rome. Um, and they had their own uh, Holy Roman Emperor that ruled over all of the Germanic peoples. Uh, in theory, he was an emperor to, in the magnitude of the ancient Roman emperors. But in reality, a lot of the power was held by local rulers. Sort of harkening back to a, a prior paper we discussed about the fact that the local rulers, the lower lords, are closer to the uh, the individual people. So. They're listened to a lot more, and uh, have you know, they uh, earn a little bit more loyalty from the the people who are sort of working the land. So, anyways, over time, more and more power 
of the Holy Roman Empire is really wielded by these lower local lords instead of the guy at the top, the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, fast, I'm sorry. Holy which what? The Holy Roman Empire. Okay. And I'm going and that's a term I'm going to use interchangeably because um, all of the, what became modern Germany and mm-hmm. the German-speaking countries in Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. Austria, Austria, um, Switzerland, Germany, all came out of this Holy Roman Empire portion of Charlemagne's empire. That's where they started from. They, they were the German states. Gotcha. Um, so anyways, they were known as the Holy Roman Empire. And I'm going to use those terms, Holy Roman Empire and Germany, a little bit interchangeably. So fast forward to the 18th century, the 1700s. Um, the Holy Roman Empire... Uh, basically was governed by a collaboration of a legislature or diet as they called it uh, of representatives from the different German substates and there was a lot of them um, and then an emperor of the Holy Roman Empire as well and their emperor uh, according to Hamilton and Madison can do a lot has, has a lot of powers they can veto acts of the, of the legislature they have um, two uh, judicial bodies that have supreme legal authority over legal issues that affect the whole empire or between lesser substates. So they have uh, this all-encompassing empire, all-encompassing judicial bodies. Um, also, the legislature of the Holy Roman Empire has a wide array of powers over regarding the, the empire as a whole. War, treaties, uh, control of currency, um, much like the Articles of Confederation, uh, member states of the Holy Roman Empire can't enter alliances with foreign powers, and they also can't impose trade taxes or tariffs against each other. So that was a power that the that uh, the state the Articles of Confederation still allowed states to have, but not the uh, organizing instruments of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, so again, Empire Emperor himself has a lot of power. He can propose legislation. He can veto laws he doesn't approve of. Um, he also has a lot of lesser powers, like granting titles of nobility, much like the titles of nobility you've conferred upon me today. Uh, he can give people certain special rights, like exemptions from taxes. Uh, found He can found public universities. Um, and as far as the land and the monetary resources at his disposal, if you added up all of the states of the Holy Roman Empire slash Germany, at large, he has a lot more on paper than many of the states of Europe at the time. So, from all these powers, all these resources that the Holy Roman Empire has, you would think that its emperor would be one of the most powerful and uh, dominant governments in all of Europe. And you would be dead wrong. Because, echoing sort of the theme of last paper, even though on paper he's got the emperor and the national government, the legislature, has all this power. In reality, it's very much undermined by the exercise of power by independent lesser states, um, making the empire as a whole not very powerful. Um, German history, from the throughout the period of the Holy Roman Empire up to German unification in the 1800s, is just a mess fights between the the unified government of the Holy Roman Empire 
and the lesser German rulers, uh, princes, dukes, or you know, etc. Uh, up to and including occasional wars between the German substates themselves. German states were also known to be become puppets, subject to interference of other countries, um, and just generally doing an awful job of getting things done all across the Holy Roman Empire. Um, in the 16th century, the Holy Roman Empire is often at war with itself, with one half of it led by the Holy Roman Empire, often fighting against another half or portion led by the leader of a powerful German state or, or foreign leader allied with them. And on it got so bad that on one occasion, the empire was forced to alter provisions of its constitution to include portions suggested by an outside power of Sweden. So this pa paper number... Uh, Paper number 19 points out that generally, even when, when, even when the empire was unified by a military emergency, it was still in relatively bad shape as far as not being unified. Um, and even when there was an outside threat, the jockeying for power among the different city-states often slowed down military preparations and decisions because everyone internally had to sort out um, who was going to be in charge and who was going to lead. Uh, the empire didn't really support its combined national army very well. The individual city-states tried to hold back a lot of power for themselves. Um, the empire, the Holy Roman Empire tried on several occasions to reform things. One of the things they did was to divide the empire into a smaller number of districts. That would be sort of a overarching... The, the, the city-states would be subject to these lesser regional districts. Uh, who in these districts would exert imperial authority, um, but the districts fell prey to the same divisions that the city-states themselves did. And then the paper talks about an example of where one of the districts uses military force to annex part of another, and the imperial government as a whole doesn't really do anything to stop it. So with all these problems of division, you think, well, why? how can the, the empire survive at all? Why hasn't it just fallen apart? completely because it seems like a dumpster fire um the paper points out though that all these german-speaking states knew that they were too weak to be independent individually so they sort of were stuck with each other even with the flaws of the holy roman empire uh, even the strongest states within it weren't as strong as the other nations around them and even when this even though the scope of the holy roman empire's power was limited it was still typically powerful enough that if there was a strong external threat the city-states could band together and defend each other. They just weren't very good at being proactive in having a combined imperial or German policy uh, to you know serve their own national interests when they weren't threatened. And on the part, the final point about uh, Germany slash the Holy Roman Empire was that external powers often went out of their way to keep Germany divided to prevent it. Be, to, to prevent it from becoming powerful and dominant, fearing that it would you know, take over all of Europe, which might have proved to be somewhat prophetic in the 20th century, um, but that was a concern of theirs at the time. And that's all that they talked about with Germany, but at the end, Hamlin and Madison throw in Poland and Switzerland real briefly saying, and they're pretty much the same. Okay. So, so we'll, we'll get into those as we get into the discussion then. Sure, sure thing, because um, there's not really that much to say about them. Yeah, well, <laughs> in this paper, like I don't want to insult 
assault them per se. But um, in case in case we have anybody living listening over in uh, Sweden or Poland, um, you know, they start off by saying, "Hey, in case our last set of examples from the." The Greeks and the Romans, um, sorry, the Greeks uh, were were insufficient. We've got a whole batch more. Yeah. Uh, and so they're back again in this paper, and they they go through the German, the a quick German history. Um, Although I will say I know, appreciate that this is a more at least more recent example, and it's not as hard to pronounce names as concepts. I think I got so bent out of shape over all of the Greek names and cities and uh organizational names that i in listening to paper 18 i think at one point i referred to the greeks being attacked by philip of the mastodons Mm -hmm. which uh was not entirely accurate he had a very limited supply of uh woolly elephantine creatures at his disposal (laughs) and i believe they were mammoths in point of fact (laughs) not mastodons so just to save any listener comments there you go um so the you know honestly, in some ways I felt like this paper gets a little too too detailed uh, when going through. It's the, simultaneously this, too detailed and not detailed enough. Yes. So in at least in my mind, the details he starts telling me like who can do which which branch of the German government that he's citing to can do what and levy taxes and someone mm-hmm. else can tie their shoes and the yep. other, other person gets to to buy the bullets. And you know, so to speak, yeah. and and it's uh, who cares? Like I don't. None of that detail is important or necessary in order just to get to his point. Um, Agreed. <laughs> I, I understand he's trying to do case studies. Yeah. Again, not to but be. But we're focusing on the wrong parts. Yeah, and not know? to not to be nitpicky, but and because he couldn't have seen this coming. But again, just to repeat a prior point I've made, not very long after uh, Hamilton writes these papers. Going and doing these deep dives into all these different countries and talking about their structure, Napoleon goes marching across Europe, wipes all these countries out, and makes it all totally irrelevant. Um, So, you know, we'll sort of never know what would have happened naturally uh, with these countries, these city-states, or not these city-states, these nations over the period of 50, 100 years in the future, because Napoleon wiped them all out. Again, I sort of feel like, is this not made irrelevant by the fact that this was just a blip on the radar. Hmm. It's almost like, you know, in focusing on this period of history that became much less important than other trends in these countries, it's almost like you were going to write about, somebody wrote a book about, hey, here's the effect of social media on the world. Here's all the innovations it brought. Here's the trends of it. But they wrote it in early 2000. All they were writing about was MySpace. <laughs> and so, like, if you were to go back in time and say, I'm going to make all of my judgments about social media and how it works based on how MySpace works, it would not be very persuasive. And my argument, I guess, is that somebody, this period in German history is the MySpace of uh, German history. It's like it was a flash in a pan. Yeah. Not, very, not as important as what came right after. So you mentioned uh, Napoleon shortly after all this going through and wiping out. And making these governments mm-hmm. sort of irrelevant. Um, yeah. And, and he they, ended them. They were gone. Yeah. Germany's gone. Poland's gone. Uh, Switzerland's gone. He ended them. They're done. Ended them. Done. Yeah. So, in the in discussing the the example at hand, though, 
and and talking about how the 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 German model how inefficient it was, mm-hmm. you know they write you know if the nation happens upon uh, any emergency to be more united by necessity of self defense, its situation is still deplorable. And it goes on and describes it. Basically, there's all this jockeying that goes on, and they've got to you know decide who's going to pay for what. And by the time they get their act together, yeah, the invading power is already kind of hunkered down into their into their uh, winter quarters. So you know. By the time they decide what to do, the invading power is on the field of battle. And by yeah. the, time, the time they decide to do anything, the war's already over. And yeah. so yeah. It, it, he points and highlights that this system is not very is not set up to defend itself well from an invading power. And obviously they were right because... It's certainly not equipped for fast action. Yeah, and because and, Napoleon came in and wiped them out. Yeah. So, and for Germany, um, that's a real issue because... Germany is not on some island protected by a sea. It's right smack dab in the middle of Europe. So when they when someone has them in mind to attack them, um, the time between that idea happening and when it actually happens could potentially be not a very long gap of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not off to the side of Europe. They're right in the middle. That is true. <laughs> Which is geographically is one of the reasons that um, when they put their mind to offensive war, they've scared the bejesus out of people. Yeah. Is because they're perfectly set up also, if they're unified, to just start rolling across every other country in Europe. Because um, they're, again, right in the middle of everything. Yeah. So, you know, and he mentioned also the, uh, the one time where Sweden ended up getting uh, in league with half of Germany, waging war mm-hmm. against the other half of Germany. Yeah. And then the German constitution ends up uh, being altered by the dictates from, from Sweden because mm-hmm. Sweden was so aligned with uh, portions of Germany. Because Sweden used to be a very powerful nation, nation back you know around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so. And so they were unified mm-hmm. and Germany wasn't. Mm-hmm. So th- I will say that it does... It does actually support the point he's trying to make of in earlier papers mm-hmm. about how if the United States, if the states of the United States are not strongly um, held together by a strong instrument of government, mm-hmm. they might be subject to the interfer- interference of foreign powers, and that's exactly what happened to Germany. I think he yeah. could have linked it a little bit clearer and better, um, but well, he kind of buries that. There's he has a page-long paragraph that um, begins with, it may be asked perhaps what has so long kept this disjointed machine from falling entirely into pieces. Mm-hmm. At the very bottom, he mentions that, you know, foreign nations have long considered themselves as interested in the changes and made by events in this constitution and have on various occasions betrayed their policy of perpetuating its anarchy and weakness. And he is essentially saying there that, you know, they meddle to for the purpose of Disrupting Germany to make mm-hmm. sure Germany doesn't become too powerful. Yeah, on on one of their borders. So because the individual German states have interests mm-hmm. that are not necessarily all aligned. Yeah, and as long as they can kind of keep that disunity, the mm-hmm. foreign power can keep the disunity going. Yeah, uh, then they don't have some behemoth right across the border that might come in and invade them. So it's in yeah. their best interest to to keep the, a certain level of disorder amongst their neighbor. And I'll tell you. I guess part of me re- regrets the fact that he's writing this at this time period rather than a little bit later because yeah. I think one of the most interesting parts of 
post Holy Roman Empire German history is the by the struggle between the two, two of the most powerful states, Prussia and Austria, to mm-hmm. sort of fight about who is going to really become the de facto leader state of Germany and determine what its culture and values are going to be. And ultimately ended up being Prussia, mm-hmm. uh, to the surprise of many. But that's a very interesting struggle. And it does, you know, that's really the best example of two German states that <clears throat> put their own in- individual state interests first and decided to subsume all of the other German states' interests into their own. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what it ended up happening was Prussia basically imposed a Prussian model, more or less, mm-hmm. onto all of Germany rather than an Austrian model. So then I I thought it was interesting. I didn't. One piece that I learned from reading this paper was this uh, point in time where Germany uh, decided to subdivide itself into these you know nine or ten circles or districts, giving them their own interior organization and telling them they can use military force within themselves yep. to, to, to enforce the laws mm-hmm. um, and basically create 10 little models of disorder yep. within themselves. Um, yeah, it's almost analogous to what would if, if there was a middle layer between state and national government in the United States where there's a yeah. middle layer government of here is the southeast region, here's the midwest region, here's the yeah. northeast region. And that and that regional power had interests, but they could use the military to enforce things. Yeah, on the states. Yeah, but would it be surprised that those regional areas would reflect the same regional diversity of interests that their component states would? So, and then the, he gives the example of so Donnerworth was a free and imperial city, the Abe de Saint Corey, apparently mm-hmm. uh, enjoyed certain immunities, which had been reserved to him and while he was there apparently uh he was insulted so he left and and then the city was put under the ban of the empire and the duke of bavaria um who was a, di- a director of another circle uh was was told to basically go and enforce the law in mm-hmm. this this rogue area and when he got there he just just took it over and yeah. <laughs> he said not only am i going to enforce the law you guys are you're done and, and for the benefit of our listeners, Bavaria, you know, it was is a fairly uh, powerful, you know, significant and powerful subregion of Germany. Mm-hmm. And so again, well, apparently, ruled by a strong, you know, a stronger sub component mm-hmm. of Germany, you know, has the power to do something to do it. So he, according to, according to this paper, you know, um, the Duke of Bavaria showed up with ten thousand troops, uh, and uh, put 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 them under his thumb yeah um because he could uh claim some ancient uh or or very far-flung uh um claim to the land and some Mm -hmm. some stretch legal authority you know Mm -hmm. but basically you know might made right and he just said i'm the law and again credit where credit is due here this that's what is predicted uh by the federalist writers earlier on they said Mm -hmm. look if we don't do something to provide greater centralization and unity yeah. to our g- national government, it's only going to be a matter of time until outsiders, either A, outsiders come in and start interfering and trying to divide us, or B, what happens here, uh, some of the members who believe themselves more powerful will try to start exerting their will in ways diplomatic and military on the Such others. as New York. Right? Yeah. Virginia, you can easily imagine Virginia yeah. was a powerhouse then. Yeah. Uh, 
Certainly not Rogue Island, though. No, they would be. Well, you got to remember. <laughs> well, they bring in somebody. They're, they're small and scrappy. They're small and scrappy. If you're so, you know, they're so small that they are going to be ultra-organized and militarized to fight off everybody. And this is where it links up. Because if you remember back then in that yeah. paper, the example I gave was Prussia. Yeah. Because, you know, Prussia is this tiny little, tiny little region of Germany. Mm-hmm. Um and but they know they're not as wealthy or as strong or as powerful, so they just turn their entire country, their whole nation, into a military with the country attached, and <laughs> they eventually take control over all of all Germany. They're eventually the driving force behind German unification. Oh man! So uh, anything else more about Germany? Any other lessons we can glean from from their example here in this paper that you felt like you wanted to highlight? Well, again, I it it does sort of support the point. But there's some uh, that they that the Federalists make about the da- the long term dangers of divisions. The question that could be asked against that though is, are there things unique about the Holy Roman Empire slash Germany um, that wouldn't apply to the United States? You know, um, they, they you know obviously they have a unique and long history. They're right in the middle of Europe. Well, easy to be divided. I mean, they're smack state. in the middle of Europe. There's yeah. one. I mean, at the time. Uh, you know the thirteen states are, yeah. You know, isolated. For yeah. The most part. I mean, to what extent do they share such a common identity? Um, to what extent do they have this, this, a shared common identity, um, like America did in the late seventeen hundreds? And to what extent did they did they not? Because, you know, in the late seventeen hundreds, it's not like the people living in the German speaking countries. No, they're ultimately, you know, they don't know ultimately how they're going to end up because mm-hmm. what eventually became the German state wasn't even all of them because, you know, Switzerland and Austria were parts of the Holy Roman Empire. They're German-speaking countries, and they didn't ultimately end up in the unified Germany. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know if it applies as fully as they'd like to say. Also, there was a different geographical situation than in the United States as far as the, mm-hmm. the buffer zone. Um, and another critique you could make is the fact that, you know, the the German the, 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 the German rules of government actually were more powerful than the Articles of Confederation. You know, they did not, they, they had more federal power regarding um, internal trade barriers between the member states uh, than the United States did under the Articles of Confederation, but that didn't seem to make that much of a difference. Um, but it just wasn't it, enough. No, it wasn't. No. But there's a lot, there's a lot of strong points that these they made yeah. about the divisions and the sub, being subject to outside manipulation. But I feel like there's cultural also cultural aspects that they sort of soft soft pedaled also. Yeah. Well, you know, you're never going to get the perfect. Fact to fact comparison case. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, every every situation is always going to have some uniqueness to it. Uh, you draw, you try to analogize as best you can to the things, yeah, things that make your case, and you know, distinguish the things that don't. So, uh, let's move on then to the little blurb that he mentions about Poland. Uh, what were your thoughts about that? Well, um, I feel like Poland's a little bit of a different scenario mm-hmm. because. He doesn't dig as deep into you know. No, I mean, he doesn't they're, they're dig as deep brief. into what Poland is yeah. and what its issues are. Um, you know, 
Poland was a sort of confederacy, but its problem is the problems Poland ran into historically weren't as much dealing with its government per se, but just its geographical situation and the situation of all the different strong powers on its border. I mean, mm-hmm. um, well, he mentions here that they lost a chunk of their land recently. Well, they did, and again, this is one where I must wish that Hamilton and Madison would have had Federal's Papers Part 2 or something on follow-up, because mm-hmm. this partition that they mentioned here was just the first of three that ends up wiping Poland completely off the map. Mm. Um, because there's three strong powers surrounding uh, Poland. There's Russia, there's Germany, well, Prussia, I'm sorry. There's Russia, Prussia, and Austria. Mm-hmm. And Basically, three three different uh, they did three partitions, and each one of those times, the three of them split chunks of Poland off. And each time, they took more and more bites out of Poland until finally there was nothing of Poland left. Hmm. And granted, if Poland might have had a stronger system of government, maybe they would have been better at repelling that. But if you're if you're Poland and you have Russia, Prussia, mm-hmm. and Austria. Basically, all your neighbors, all allied against you at once and all agreeing that they're going to carve you up. Yeah, good luck, right? I mean, (laughs) if they would have had their best ever government, how much better off would they have been? Now, that being said, one of the things that opened up Poland to that situation in the first place was internal power struggles. You know, Mm -hmm. it was sort of like a blood-in-the-water situation. It is that situation where different different factions within Poland... Are wanting to do different things, and that perf- that is sort of the justification the outside parties use to get themselves into the problem in the first place. Is say, mm-hmm. "Oh, we're supporting this Polish faction, yeah. so they want us to be involved." And the situation with Poland actually is a strong echo of the German, the the Greek situations we spoke about last episode, last where one of the subpowers or one of the sub factions invites in outside mm-hmm. interference and then and ended up screwing all of them in. Yeah. So I wish they would have drawn that out a little bit more in this paper then because that would have tied it nicely. Um, but they don't. They just – they really mention Poland in passing. I feel like at this point even Hamilton and Madison are starting to internally acknowledge that they're getting a little bit long in the tooth on some of these <laughs> deep dives. Well, every title, it's – you know, we have six papers I think linked together that say, you know, same subject, continued. Um, and so, yeah, we're – maybe we are getting a little bit long in the tooth in this, this – uh, uh, and you know what? This, maybe that is why perhaps people don't take the deep dive that we're doing here uh, into well, the those mean, papers because they go, oh, another one about it. <laughs> frankly, uh, on this one paper, yeah, to really get into a deep critique of it, yeah, this one relatively short paper, you have to do a deep dive into Germanic history, Germanic history of government, mm-hmm. Swiss history of government, and Polish history of government in a period of time. That is a little bit over 200 years ago, mm-hmm. and not one of the more highly studied studied eras of that country's government. Um, yeah. Now, Poland might be an exception to that because the partitions of Poland back then were what wiped it off the map and caused Poland to disappear until it was reconstituted after World War One. So, so that that one is more highly analyzed and reviewed. Um. So then they get into this this the uh, the Swiss uh, setup at the time. She says, you know, they kind of amounts to a confederacy, but they have no common treasury, no common troops, no common coin, no common judiciary, and no other uh, any other common mark of sovereignty. So, you know, he says basically they're they're 
stuck together due to their topography, um, their individual weakness, uh, fear of their neighbors, um, and and sort of the just kind of this forced to be together by circumstance, mm-hmm. not because they have any real central loyalty to one another, yeah, uh, or shared value system of any kind. Um, yeah, looking into it, I think Ham was pretty is is on is on point and and accurate when he says that the Swiss Confederacy was a relatively weak Confederacy mm-hmm. of subunits called cantons, I believe. Yes. Um, and they, I think one of the reasons that they were able to be a lot weaker um, is, as he cites, they are, have this a sort of a shield of mount, a shield of a ring of mountains all around them. And so they feel like they don't need to be as ready to defend themselves against outside threats because it's going to be so difficult for outside powers to get into Sweden, Sweden, Switzerland in mm-hmm. the first place, um, and they're going to have plenty of warning that this outside party is coming through the mountains already. Mm-hmm. So, good illustration of the role that geography and topography uh, can play in the mindset of a of a government. So, what's interesting though is um, he really drives the point home, and he points out that he says whatever, basically anytime these unions have a problem if, if they happen to be getting along uh well enough together as soon as something tests their loyalty you know they fall apart and he, well he, i think we should drill you know, down a little bit on what on the term you use test their loyalty because i think you can break that down into it seems like these governments are good at defending themselves militarily when you don't have a common interest from yeah. an outside threat but the the test of loyalty they're less good at is when there's no immediate outside threat mm-hmm. and they have different interests, yeah. then they, yeah. that's when they get themselves into trouble. Yeah. And so when he's talking about the, the Swiss, he mentions about how religion became a big big problem for him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's the Catholic section and then there's the Protestant section. Yeah. And those two sections ended up becoming so independent on their own mm-hmm. that, that the overarching Swiss government had very little control over them. Yeah. Well, especially to and the then, extent that something very common during that era, but more before it, yeah. is when another nearby country or nation was engaged in a military struggle, mm-hmm. people of a similar religious Faith. belief structure yeah. might be tempted to ally with them, but the people of a diverging belief structure might mm-hmm. not feel similar sympathies, and it could test the internal loyalties. Yes. And that's that ended up happening with the Swiss. Um, yeah. he, he points out that it produced uh, opposite allies with foreign powers. Um of Bernie uh, at the head of the Protestant Association and with the United Provinces and of Luzerine, the head of the Catholic Association with France. So, uh, and that's that's sort of where this paper wraps up. So, I think there's two really interesting questions though that mm-hmm. he doesn't pose that, but in reading it, I pose that I think can be posed. Okay. One of them is all of these examples he gives of the Confederacies, ancient and more contemporary to him. He gives them for the purpose of saying, "Look, these countries are these these confederacies are so weak, they can't really defend themselves, um, and that's why we need to be have a stronger internal government structure than what they had." And on the face of it, the fate of them—you know, the Greeks, the, the Germans, the Swiss, the uh, Poland, Polish—you mm-hmm. know how they ended up when Napoleon came marching through. 
What's make you think? Oh yeah, well they got crushed by Napoleon. Obviously, it was their government's fault. Yeah. Except for the fact that there was a lot of other governments that Hamilton doesn't talk about with much more centralized power that did just as badly. I mean, it wasn't Russia was very centralized. As you know, the the Russian emperor had a lot of power, mm-hmm. uh, but it wasn't that all that power didn't really wasn't you know great at beating Napoleon. It was Russian winter that did, and so. <laughs> I, I don't think it's such a foregone conclusion that it was the weakness of these governments that ended them against Napoleon because the control cases of countries that are more centralized and unified didn't do much better. You know, mm-hmm. Napoleon controlled all of Europe for a time. Yeah. Um, and it was an international coalition or a confederacy mm-hmm. that finally defeated him. Oh. Oh, look what you did there. It wasn't the British alone <laughs> at Waterloo. They were joined by the Prussians yep. and the Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, ultimately, if the if uh, the Duke of Wellington would not have gotten reinforcements from his allies in the final day at Waterloo, would he have won? Probably not. He was on the verge. People were on the verge of breaking. Um, it was a coalition, a weak coalition that, that beat him in the end, mm-hmm. um, and not a single unified power. So that's the first question. Okay. I think uh, the second question is yes, obviously, a more centralized and uniform form of government could take um, faster and more decisive action, more offensive. Or proactive action rather than reactionary action. That I mean, I don't think there's any dispute about that. Mm-hmm. But Hamilton takes that as a given that it's a good thing, and I'm not sure that it always is. If you study uh, international conflict theory at all, or the way of international warfare and whatnot, because it does seem like, generally speaking, these different confederacies that we've talked about so far, when there's a strong outside threat. They do what they're supposed to do. They actually are good at defending themselves from outside threats. What they're bad, what they're bad at, relatively speaking, is re- waging offensive war and proactively pushing their interests externally. Um, and again, within the what, say the what we've been talking about, the best example of that is you can't get much more centralized and unified as a governmental force than. France under Napoleon. You know, once he got established as the Emperor of France, that was it. He was the Emperor of France, and his word was law, and that was that. Mm-hmm. And he used all that decisive unity to go rampaging throughout Europe. Same thing in Hitler's Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, the more unity you have, the easier it is for that unified governmental force to act quickly, not just to defend itself, but to go on external Not adventures. Yeah. And that matters for America because it could be asked in compar- comparatively, especially back before the Civil War, you know, um, when the states had more power. Yeah. They're really not ga- engaging in a bunch of foreign adventures. But the more, has, is it the case that the more unified and centralized American federal government authority has become, the more frequently. Uh, and more decisively, America has engaged in foreign, external military adventures. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Hamilton likes that centralization of power. And I think he'd say, well, it's a good thing to be pre- pressing your interests outside your country. Mm-hmm. But I think it's something that 
and looking at this paper, you could really ask the question of, is what Hamilton thinks is good or bad really what we always think of as good or bad? Yeah. Is it, you know, I, that's what I was thinking about is, is often, you know, more offensive, more proactive, always a good thing for the citizens of the country. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think that, oh, uh, well, I mean, yeah. do you agree that in the last, you know, uh, America has the American government is a lot is a bit quicker now to engage in uh, extra national military action than it has been in the past. I'm not talking about yeah. the last few decades. No, no, no. I understand, and and uh, I I can see the 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 trend that you're drawing. Uh, I think it's a reasonable conclusion mm-hmm. that you made uh, that as federal power seems to have increased, so have our um, adventures, so to speak, abroad. And interestingly, though, you can see that Congress, um, uh, as a result of the Vietnam War, you know, they passed the War Powers Act, yeah. right, to try to limit the executive's ability to just go off mm-hmm. on a uh, military campaign. Yeah. Um, but then even that has been, you know, like the intention of the War Powers Act was was to to uh, force the mm-hmm. executive to come to Congress and say, you need to actively declare war, actively declare war, and whatnot. But then. After after it's passed, but just just don't call it war. Call it something else. That's exactly. There's only been one time where we've actually yeah. declared war, which you know, which was the the Gulf War. Yeah, I um, mean, obviously, Gulf it's war not won. a prerequisite that you have to declare war before you put troops anywhere outside the United no. States. And then once once they're there and they're stationed and they're actively involved in a heated military exercise, uh, you know, we don't. Uh, we don't seem to be willing to draw them back when we hit the whatever the deadline is in the war power. Either thirty days or ninety. I forget what the exact. I'm not sure. I don't remember. Uh, but there's a short period of time in which, if there's an extension emergency, the executive can go and act. But then, if that emergency lasts beyond a certain amount of time, uh, the executive allegedly has to come to Congress and ask for a declaration of war in order yeah. to continue to operate. Um, but I think the Gulf War One is the only time with George H. W. Bush. Since that's been passed, that we've actually had a formal declaration of war. I could be wrong on that. Um, it. Um, I don't think. I don't think that the uh, use of military authorization uh, in, uh, for Iraq or our our incursion into Afghanistan were, were formal declarations of war. Were they? Do you know? I think you're correct in saying it was just Gulf War One uh, that okay. was there was a formal declaration of war. But to answer your time period question, apparently it's the the time periods are 48. The president has to notify Congress within 48 hours of committing oh, armed force, okay. forces to a military action, and they have to remain no more than 60 days with a 30 day withdrawal period. That's okay. the timeline. Yeah, I thought it, okay. But those are great so, points. You know, and to so, dr- to connect it with the overall thing we've been talking about. In our in the paper we've been discussing, one of the things we've discussed is <clears throat> at this time when they're writing these papers, yes, you have Barbary pirates <laughs> who are constantly attacking American ships, mm-hmm. taking them over, and selling Americans into slavery regularly, and the government back then can't seem to get together enough to say, hey. We all agree we need to do something to stop this, and it's going to be X. Yeah. You know, compare that to now, which is, you know, we're, can you imagine, I mean, if even, if that happened even once nowadays now, in the modern times, how long do you think it would take for there to be a response? It wouldn't be a period of years. 
I'm yeah. fairly certain. But it's a dramatic contrast. <laughs> yeah. so. It is, it is a dramatic time, contrast. The now, Federation, granted, the world's a lot smaller. We can, yeah. move, we can move to the other side of the globe a lot faster than, than they could in, you know, at the formation True. of the country. But you're right that you know, at the formation of the country, we were very much more like a confederacy yeah. than we were a confederacy. We echoed ways. these other confederacies. More defensive than offense. More defensive than offense. And, and as they point out in Paper 19, but by the time the confederacy can get its troops on the field, mm-hmm. the war's over. You know? Yeah. Um, and so much the same way with Barbary Pirates. You know, how long did it take us to get our, our act together yeah. there to deal with that? A great yeah. counterpoint to the Barbary Pirates is, you know, Barbary Pirates, years and years of American ships being... Take, sunk or taken over. Americans being captured and sold into slavery. Nineteen eighty-two, Grenada, mm-hmm. Grenada, Grenada. Yeah, handful of Americans, medical students, uh, taken hostage. And like the, our answer is almost immediately, we will own this country. <laughs> we will, we will go in there. And we will take out everything. Like the next day. <laughs> so point counterpoint. Yeah, and again. I, am I saying that you know it would be good to let other countries run roughshod over American rights and values? Well, I'm not saying pejoratively good, bad, either way. But no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it bears looking at that. You know, it's not a uh, neither situation is an unconditional good or bad. Mm-hmm. Each each situation has aspects that I think some might consider to be strengths and some might consider to be weaknesses, and I think different people will look at them different ways. So right. each situation, which situations you're referring to? This the situation of how un, how clear. relatively uncentralized federal power is, mm-hmm. because I I think it's been a consistent theme from the anti-federalists back in Hamilton's time up yes. to the states' rights people now that what the Hamilton crowd would look as a as a good thing of having this unified, strong federal power that could take decisive fe- action mm-hmm. to impose a uniform solution throughout the land. Yeah. The anti-federalist and the states' rights people would look at it as being a bad thing because their their point of view is more look whenever possible. I don't want to send up to this unified power the decision to make a decision for every, the ability to make a decision for everybody yes. and impose it on me. I want it to be closer to where I live, closer to people that I have an influence over and can yes. put my influence in. And yet, at. the states' rights people of today often align themselves. With the Federalists. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a whole other discussion. I mean, it just boggles my mind sometimes. You know, they're very much, you know, Federalist, Federalist, Federalist. And, I'm, you know, I shake my head sometimes. I'm like, you guys realize that the Federalists wanted to increase federal power, right? Um, but It is an interesting thing because I think that the the term Federalists, even back then, yeah. there, just, there was an argument about what that term meant and who owns it. Mm-hmm. You know, even back then, it's does federalism mean strong federal power, or does federalism mean delegating some powers down to the states? But uh, well, I think we made our points there. I just wanted to yeah. bring that up as there are some non-obvious questions that could be asked about from from this paper and what it means to us today, and what values uh, and structures of government um, mm-hmm. in my favor. All right. Well, that'll do it for uh, Paper 19. I know we promised a guest star or guest uh, co, co guest contributor, uh, I'll call. That, person. that has been delayed. But it's been delayed. Uh, and uh, and we will hopefully have a third voice uh, in the near future uh, on a, another episode coming up 
Um, it will occur. It will occur. Uh, until we will have time. intervention by outside powers into this podcast <laughs> in the near future, and it will not. Unlike the Holy Roman Empire, it will not divide. It will us. not divide us, even though yeah, even though one of us is, is bringing in an outside power. That's right. So we will be a unified, uh, a more strongly unified, Holy Roman paperless Federalist podcast. There you go. Uh, so until next time, uh, thanks for joining us, everybody, and we'll see you. We'll see you in the next paper. See you then. All right. Bye.